I'm Melanie Sayward and you are tuning in to The Pink Elephant. Hey there, welcome to The Pink Elephant Podcast where we talk about the most undiscussed issue in the body of Christ today. That despite all we know, it can feel as though there is something missing in our faith. You know, last episode, we talked all about oneness and I focused primarily on oneness with Christ. And though I alluded to the fact that this oneness also pertains to our relationship with each other, you know, believer to believer, I didn't really go into so much detail. But having thought about it, I really feel that I do need to talk about oneness with each other in more detail because it is an area where our lack of depth shows. I'm going to preface this episode by saying that some people aren't going to like this episode because it is super challenging and it is going to challenge how we have participated and represented the concept of the church. So I'm not expecting to make many friends with this episode, but you know, I'm an introvert and I've already got my three friends, so I'm probably not really that worried about that. But also, if we really want to be faithful to this vision of the church as Jesus sees it, we will need to go deeper. We will need to really ask ourselves whether he would be proud of what we have created and allow ourselves to be corrected if not. To begin, we must return to John 17, starting in verse 20. It says, I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Jesus likens the oneness that we are to have with each other to the oneness he experiences with the Father. He says that all of them may be one, just as you are in me and I am in you. Now that is huge. You know, a bit of time in the Gospels will reveal pretty quickly the relationship Jesus shared with his Father was inseparable. It was a type of unity that is just so unique. It's so rare. It's special, you know. Jesus and the Father are two parts of the Trinity. They are indivisible. Just listen to some of the things that Jesus tells us about the oneness he experiences with his Father. In John 5.20, he says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. He loves the Son. There are no secrets between them. There is transparency, honesty, and authenticity. John 5.22 says, For the Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son. The Father trusts the Son and completely delegates his authority to the Son. And there is actually so much more we can learn from examining the relationship between Jesus and his Father, just in general, you know, let alone this specific oneness that Jesus is speaking of here. So again, in John 17, Jesus is using this relationship as far as it pertains to oneness as a model for that which we are to have with one another. It's actually a little humbling. Jesus is laying out a ridiculously lofty vision. And a glance over the history of the church would make even an idealist like me struggle to believe that this is a vision worth pursuing. There has never been a time on this earth where there wasn't some kind of conflict between believers, whether it be denominationally or within individual churches. It really didn't take long, too, for turmoil to ensue in the early church, as we can see in many of the letters in the New Testament. The earliest letter was probably written 50 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. That's not that long. 
And really, the church is not very different now. Your own church might have been through one conflict or maybe even two a long time ago, but that's just one community. If every church has been through the same, that's a lot of conflict, yeah? The truth is, at any given time, there are many churches going through major and minor internal conflicts. It's not what we want to hear. It's not what we want non-believers to know. But that didn't stop Paul and the apostles from tirelessly addressing the issues in the church and calling them to look to God's greater purpose for the church. And that's part of the problem today. Those who love the church enough to want to call it back to its greater purpose are either labelled as having baggage and silenced for lack of positivity. But what if they are just the people that have been made aware of how much the church still needs Jesus and love to be at the centre of it? For all the barriers that exist and all the doubts we have about how achievable Jesus' vision is, do we really have the right to give up its pursuit when it's what he asked for. So what does it mean for the people of God, those of us who have come to believe in his message to be one? I just want to focus on two things, but they're two big things really. Oneness is centered on Jesus and love, love for God and love for each other. You know, there is an element of oneness and unity that the world can experience. I've seen it. I've worked in some of the most united secular workplaces amidst the most united teams. There's unity amongst social causes, anti-racism, feminism, sexual orientation, pro-life, pro-choice. People unite over hatred too, white supremacists. Unity happens everywhere. The difference is what we unite around. Even if within these communities people experience love for one another, that's not the cause for their connection. For feminists, their community is based around their common experiences of injustice and their desire to see change. For a secular workplace, their common goal is to make money. Yes, they may also want to be a market leader and have quality products. They might really love their customers, but the common goal is to make money. It's usually a common experience or a common goal that causes groups to exist and to participate. But what is it supposed to be for the church? What unites us? What makes us one? It's supposed to be love. Love for Jesus, which extends into mutual love for each other. That is the evidence that we are followers of Christ, that we love each other, not just in general, not just loving everyone outside of the church as well, but specifically loving each other. John 13, 35, you've heard this by this. Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's the first point. Oneness is centered on Jesus and love. The second point, oneness has this underlying presupposition that we are equals and the specific role we play in the church doesn't change that. Oneness can be interpreted as unity, and it certainly has been. But sadly, unity has actually often been misused as a term. The word unity can be used to demand others to align with the preset expectation by another, usually a leader or a parent or someone in authority. But the problem with this interpretation of unity is that it advocates conformity more so than unity. And conformity, well, that's not really unity. Unity at its most basic level interprets all others as equals. 
You can't be united if one person's submission is demanded, nor if conformity is demanded, because that would cause them to be unequal. If they choose to relent out of love, not compulsion, that's different. But often love is not how the appeal to unity is made. To be genuine oneness, it must be equal members choosing to prefer the needs of the other, just as the Trinity does. In that sort of equal care and love, nobody's needs are neglected. You know, Paul did not demand submission. He challenged, exhorted, taught, but he didn't ever really demand. Even in the case of Onesimus in the book of Philemon, where Paul is encouraging Philemon to forgive and receive Onesimus, who wronged Philemon in some way, Paul mentions that he could order Philemon to take Onesimus back, which, by the way, we don't really know if Paul says this because he believes he has the positional authority to, or because he thinks Philemon owes him something, or because he has earned Philemon's respect enough to make such a request. We just know that Paul says that he would prefer to appeal to Philemon on the basis of love. He doesn't use any kind of power that he may have to force Philemon. He chooses to persuade him based on love. Jesus didn't demand the submission of the disciples either, though he could have. They willingly followed him and he directed them with the permission he was given. If Jesus was the type of leader that demanded submission, he would have kicked Judas out the moment he knew he had betrayed him. But Jesus amazingly let Judas betray him and continued to participate until Judas decided to walk out. And he never actually kicked him out of the family. Judas left. Let that one sink in for a second. Look, I just wanted to say all of this to demonstrate that a unity that is forced is not really unity, nor is it validated in scripture to demand conformity under the pretense of unity. We see this equality demonstrated in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 to 27, where Paul talks about one body with many members. It's a passage where he talks about the eyes and the hands and, you know, the different parts of the body and compares the family of God to a human body. In verse 13, Paul says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Therefore, by virtue of the spirit, we are all one, right? But Paul goes on. He says in verse 22 that the parts of the body that may seem weaker are indispensable. What an extraordinary statement. Indispensable. They cannot be done without. They cannot be discarded. It is not our choice. Paul goes on again in verse 25 to say that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Paul is saying that every member is equal in their contribution and their value. No member is to be overlooked, despised, forgotten, or neglected. Oneness requires equality. I think you get the point, right? Okay, so that's that's like the two primary concepts critical to know about oneness with each other, love and equality. Sadly, as you are aware... Our shallow approach to faith is 100% affecting our obedience to these biblical truths. It's affecting the kinds of things we discuss when we perceive the concept of the church or the body of Christ. How is shallowness affecting? Let me tell you. When Jesus said that we would be identified by our love for each other, he was saying that there would be no greater signal to the world and each other, no greater sign of being a disciple than how we love each other. 
Not doctrine, not the size of our churches, not the institution of church, not evangelism, not tongues or prophecy, not having Christians in high places or sitting in seats of fame. Consider this one, not even revivals. According to this verse, in Jesus' eyes, none of these things would ever be a greater signal to the world that we truly love and follow Jesus than our love for one another. Are you getting this? At its most basic level, the world does not believe that our love for each other is the hallmark of being a follower of Christ. The universal symbol of Jesus to the world is the church as the institution. And maybe that would be okay if the church was known for its love, but it's not. Not even Christians are convinced that the church loves them. How we treat each other really matters. Now, Paul got this. He understood this well, even though he himself considered his job to go out there and preach the word. He still spent significant amounts of time and energy speaking into the way in which followers of Jesus were treating each other in these communities that he had planted. He didn't plant these churches and just move on to the next community. In some cases, he stayed for years, teaching them sound doctrine, operating in the gifts of the spirit. And of course, he wrote letters. In the New Testament, on 100 occasions, there is what is called a one another instruction. This is where Jesus's followers are told to love one another, bear with one another, be patient with one another, be devoted to one another. These kinds of statements occur a hundred times in the New Testament and they're sort of colloquially just called the one another's. Love one another occurs 16 times alone. Now, look, don't worry, I'm not going to go through all 100, but that is a lot when you consider the size of the New Testament. There are 260 chapters in the New Testament, which technically means that you could expect to see a one another statement in almost every second chapter. That's a pretty decent hit rate. Paul's commitment to his brothers and sisters in Christ is so intense, so sacrificial, that in a discussion about eating meat that has been offered to idols, he says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. That's in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 13. That's crazy. He cares more about the brother with a weaker conscience then he does his right to be able to eat whatever he wants according to this new covenant where food no longer has spiritual significance as it did. Now, I know vegetarians do this every day, as in, you know, they don't eat meat. But I'd say very few of them do it for someone else's conscience. Paul is literally suggesting that he would refrain from eating meat if it meant that it would prevent a weaker Christ follower from experiencing misplaced guilt and confusion. Paul makes it his responsibility to care in this way for his brother and sister in Christ. Now, I couldn't have brought up a more misused passage. That, for the Christian world, has mistakenly presumed applies only to alcohol and modest attire for women. What a disservice we have done to the body of Christ when we have confined this passage in its applicability and in some cases used it as a weapon for judgment over a select group of society. There are so many other things that Christians do to cause each other to stumble that are far more unloving than a woman wearing a shorter than the average skirt. If you want to see how unseriously we take this passage, 
all you got to do is jump onto Instagram or Facebook and read the comments section of a mildly controversial Christian post. The things Christians say to each other over differences of their opinions, they can be hateful. I'm sorry to say. The fact is we aren't even willing to shut our mouths out of love. So how exactly does the shallowness in our faith present? There are three points and they're big points, but we're going to do this. Number one, there are a lot of things that happen in church that are ridiculously unloving. There are subtle things, you know, for example, exclusion. I was in a prophetic course last year and the number of people that mentioned how they were excluded for sharing prophetic words and visions was staggering. Yeah, okay, I'm only seeing one side of the picture. Maybe the prophetic people were unloving in the way they delivered it. Yeah, possibly, but they can't all have been unloving. At some point, you can only conclude that a significant proportion of them were excluded because of their prophetic gifting. Maybe they said something, however gentle, that someone in the church didn't want to hear. Maybe they were just excluded because they were prophetic. Either way, they were excluded for a spiritual gift which they probably don't have control over. I know for myself, having dreams is something I cannot control. When I meet people who don't quite get it, the first thing they say to me is, maybe you ate too much pizza last night. Well, look, if that were true, it means that I eat pizza every night, which I can assure you I don't. And it also means that I'm eating about three pizzas all to myself at least several times a month. And on at least one occasion, I ate eight pizzas. Like, I'm not a small person, but I feel sick thinking about that much pizza. It can't be pizza. I can't control the dreams, just like prophetic people can't help what they hear or see. Yep, you heard it right. I once had eight dreams in one night. If you ever see me yawning in our conversation, please don't assume it's you. It's probably just that I had a a night full of dreams, okay? So... Just putting that out there. Now, I know that there is exclusion going on that is far worse than that. There's exclusion based on race or gender or even political opinions. But at the end of the day, all of it is not loving. Now, I have repented for this, but I have been a leader that was guilty of saying this. We should praise the behavior we want to see in the church. In other words, get people on stage that represent the values of the church and put them on display. What an awfully manipulative thing to do. Yeah, that might happen in the corporate world, but not the church. We ought to celebrate anyone who is getting up every day and trying to live a life of faith. Why did I think it was okay to parade some standard of conformity for others to see? They are either going to feel inspired or people are going to feel completely inadequate and ashamed. And I knowingly did that. I knowingly suggested those kinds of strategies so that people in our congregation would do what we wanted them to. That's not love because in 1 Corinthians, it says that love has no agenda. I was actually doing the opposite of loving. I also wasn't loving the person who got up on stage when I thought it would be a good thing to reward them for the behavior I liked. I wasn't given authority and influence to be the judge on what looks good for Christians. Yeah, I was one of those leaders and I've promised myself I will never be like that again because if love is the goal for all of us, and it is, then my greatest mandate as a leader is to demonstrate how to love 
Just as Jesus sets the standard of love for all of us, just as Paul loved Onesimus despite his shortcomings, we are meant to love first and foremost. Did you know that Paul had such love, mercy and confidence in Onesimus that he said to Philemon, if he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. That's in verse 18. Again, it's so extreme. Instead of excluding, he extended mercy. You know, having worked in the background at a church and especially in the small groups ministry, I've had a decent amount of exposure to discipleship strategies and how churches determine whether you are a disciple. And the most common factors are, number one, are you missional? Do you bring people to church? Number two, do you tithe? Do you give 10% to the church? And yes, some churches actually have software to track that. Number three, do you attend? Do you show up to church, small groups, prayer meetings, etc., etc.? And lastly, do you serve? Are you on a team? Now, here's my very brief observations on that. It is entirely possible to do every one of those things without love. It's entirely possible to be missional and service-oriented and for it to be never seen by a church leader. So why are we using that measure? See, I think in the church's zeal to borrow concepts from the business world, they have mistakenly confused discipleship with church engagement, and there is a major distinction. See, when companies do engagement surveys with their staff, in some ways what they are really ultimately measuring is retention. They're looking at retention levels. Is the retention of their staff low or high? How much do they like working here? Because the assumption is if they do like it, they will stay and produce good work. Another way of putting it is how invested are they? Now, why do we need to measure retention in a church? Why would we need to know whether a person is likely to leave or not? If we are doing all the right things, we are going to have some people leave. Jesus did. So why would we need to measure that? Why would we be aiming for church engagement over a disciple who loves? Okay, number two, our goals are askew. We in the church are fairly distracted. We all are, the leaders and the congregation members. I mean, I do suppose that if the leaders are distracted, it stands to reason that the people following them will be too, right? And I think this is what accounts for love being a secondary factor in how we behave with each other. So firstly, church has become more like a business. Like not all of them, but, you know, a lot of them. And let's face it, sometimes it's more like big business. Is it all bad? Probably not. But there are definitely some parts that are bad. They are inconsistent with the values of our Christian faith. I actually believe this is a much greater factor in the millennial generation moving away from church. They are anti-big business. Have we not noticed that? They are deterred by anything that would represent power and systemic control. They know how big businesses don't really care about the little guy. They don't really care about employees. These millennials have been marketed to all their life. They can spot inauthenticity a mile away. They walk into churches these days and they presume that these churches that look like, you know, big businesses have an agenda, which means they can't be trusted. As a 38-year-old millennial, yes, I am a millennial. I'm, I'm on the cusp. 
I'm technically millennials are like 24 to 40 years of age. And by God, I will hold on to that technicality for as long as I can. Okay. Anyway, as a 38 year old millennial, my question is why did we ever look to the business world as a model for the church? I don't consider the business world loving. And why would we want to be like something in the world? That doesn't make us holy. Is the business world bad? No, it's not all bad. I've worked in the business world and there are good people with great ideas and awesome values, but they aren't necessarily biblical. I mean, we have the blueprint on how to love. It's them that can learn from us. See, I think the worst thing about being businesslike in our approach is that we compromise on our values. Do you know how many times I've visited a church or a conference and heard about the message of God, you know, the one that says, you know, we care about the one and the parable of the lost sheep and all that kind of stuff. And then like, you know, even just moments later, they're talking about numbers. Like, am I the only one that notices that? Do you know who cares about numbers? The business world. Can you care about numbers and love people? Sure. If you can be a hundred percent certain that it will never, ever, ever compromise how you love the sheep, the one. And I got doubts on whether any leader could really be 100% sure of that. A default consequence of being businesslike in our approach is that we inevitably have to be really clear on what our product or our service is because we have to understand what we are trying to sell. That's a business idea. That's how businesses work, right? Now, I know that Christian leaders haven't sat around a table to work this out, but it's a natural byproduct of basing our modus operandi on a system that believes success looks like profit margins. You got to know what your greatest selling point is, right? Like, I mean, that's a marketing thing. That's a, that's a business thing. Well, I don't even have to think twice about what most people, leaders and congregants believe is the product in a church. It's the Sunday service. The Sunday service is the product. That is why churches spend most of their time fine tuning the service I can walk into any church and guarantee that they do some kind of Sunday review on the services. Do they do a review on any other aspects of the church? Look, if I did a survey on all of the churches in Australia, I would probably discover that a small portion would. Maybe they, you know, 20% might do a review on their small groups or other things, like as regularly. But I am 100% confident that the same survey would reveal that on the Monday, the proportion of churches that debrief and review the Sunday services are in the 90 plus percentile. Now, is there anything wrong with that? No, you can review what you want, but it tells me what you think your product is. Is that right though? Is the Sunday service what we are selling? Now, if we were going to be selling anything, I would say that it would be Jesus as sacrilegious as that sounds, he would be the product. Now, don't tell me that is what a service is all about. It's not. I can't tell you how many services I've sat in over the years where I've walked out and been like, you know what? I don't actually think Jesus was even mentioned in that message, except for at the end, for the altar call. You know, our services aren't always about Jesus. I'm just saying. Sometimes I would go as far as saying that I didn't even feel like Jesus was even in the service that day, as in he was missing from the church. Now there's a pink elephant for you. Don't assume that because a few words from the scriptures were mentioned that you sold them Jesus today. 
Now, just so you know, I was just carrying along with that language for the sake of the analogy, right? Like, I don't actually think Jesus is a product. And if I ever did, I would be at the height of disrespect to my loving Savior that sacrificed it all for this church. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I'm tearing up. But there is no product in our faith and Jesus is not a product. We aren't selling the world a product. That is not why people come to faith. They don't genuinely receive Jesus because they see a product that might make their life better. And if they did, the minute their life didn't look that great, they would be selling that thing on Gumtree or Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist for my American friends. We don't have a product. We have a person, a relationship, a life. See, that's how the word sin left the pulpit in the last generation because we started to look at Jesus as a product and realize that people don't want to buy what we are selling when we use that word. So we thought we might change the catchphrase. But Jesus was the one who was walking around calling people to repent. He didn't change the script to suit the audience because he wasn't looking for believers who would buy what he was selling. He was looking for believers who would reorient their entire life, no matter what was thrown at them, to follow him. Now, I am going to talk about sin in another episode because I do think there are some pastors out there that are a little bit too condemnation focused, but I think you get my point. Ironically, or maybe not so ironically, the same pastors will complain that their congregation members come to church and act like customers. They come on a Sunday, receive their sermon like they just bought their supersized McDonald's meal and they go home. My question is, what did you expect when you decided to act like a business? What did leaders think was going to happen when we looked to the business world to define what we were doing and how we do it? See, the language we see time and again regarding how we are to relate to each other in the body of Christ is a family The church is supposed to feel like family, but the institution of church or even the business of church has taken precedence over the family. Can you have both? I don't know. Do I consider myself a family member of the Apple company? I love their products, but I wouldn't say I feel like family. And actually, I don't think I even want to be. Does my husband consider himself a family member of Bunnings, even though he probably knows the people there and can tell you which aisle to find what you're looking for? He doesn't work there. He basically just lives there. And he should probably get a commission or be a consultant or something because, you know, he is really committed to that company. But would he call that a family? Just for my American friends, Bunnings is kind of like Home Depot. Like, yeah, anyway. Is it possible to be family with an organisation? that has goals, mission statements, and key performance indicators? I'm not sure. I personally sort of don't think so. We've all come from our own families, many of which were rigidly committed to their own shallow agendas and selfish ambitions. I don't think that's what people are looking for when they come to a church. Is that what churches are trying to do? You tell me. I know that they have targets that they are trying to reach when it comes to having people on teams, small groups, tithes, and a host of other things. Can we all be certain that these targets don't influence their interactions with us? You know, I can recall going through a really, really rough time and being really down and overwhelmed and talking to a pastor and confiding in a pastor about it. And the pastor told me their solution was that I needed to be serving in church. 
That was the solution they gave me. Their solution to me being overwhelmed was to serve. Was that right? No. It was downright negligent of them. I knew how much they were needing people to serve at the time. You tell me, was their suggestion influenced by love or their targets? See, businesses often care more about their brand image and how they are projected than about what they are actually doing. If businesses really cared about society and what is good for people, there would be no cigarette companies and junk food just wouldn't even be a thing and they certainly wouldn't market it to kids. It wouldn't be acceptable for betting companies, gambling companies to have secured a space on TV for during and after a rugby game and to do that little, you know, gamble responsibly quote that they do that is so super fast that you can barely understand it. And you wouldn't even need a law to govern those gambling companies. Businesses don't all have a societal conscience, but the church should as a first priority to the church society. So again, why are we looking at businesses to determine how the church, the body of Christ, is to function? Now, here's the worst thing. At its extreme Churches that act like businesses do ungodly things, just as you would expect in the business world. They don't seek God. They issue hush money or gag orders to ex-staff members to cover up the indiscretions of pastors and leaders. Yeah, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about knowing that sometimes your tithe is used in that way? They protect their brand, not the people. They condemn people who leave. Now, obviously, I'm talking at the extreme. This is not the case for all churches. In fact, it's probably a handful of churches. They cook the books to hide using tithe money to buy expensive clothes for their Instagram photos. They bully their staff members to the point of psychological breakdown. They purchase designer label goods to get that guest speaker to the women's conference, in addition to the thousands that they're already paying. My point is... When a church's vision has become about being some big lucrative organization, the temptation to sin will never be far from the door. I know too much of the backdoor shenanigans that happen in some churches. Yes, it is only some, but it's still too many for my liking. And point number three, and this is my last point, we've been talking around the issue. Now, there are many people like me out there that have been feeling the same way. When it comes to the church and the way the church functions today. And just so you know, I started thinking about this kind of stuff when I was still working at a church. So my concerns didn't arise out of some reaction to some offense or church conflict. I was having these kinds of discussions for years before I left my church role. I simply kept reading scripture and feeling like something didn't seem right. Most of the people I have seen who have left these business-ish churches basically believe that this is not the way the church was meant to be and they have to go to a house church or or dinner church or all that kind of stuff. They believe that this mega church style, which is often synonymous with that sort of business-oriented church, but, you know, it doesn't have to be. A mega church isn't necessarily always business-oriented and even some small churches are business-oriented. They believe that this is not the way the church is supposed to be, though. That's the point I'm trying to make. And so there is this internal debate that has ensued between the house churches and the mainstream institutional style churches. You know it. Pastors in institutional style churches say things like, you know, house churches aren't really good because they don't have accountability. 
Yeah, personally, I think that is such a cop-out because structure doesn't equal accountability. I don't even want to tell you the kind of misdemeanors I've known pastors were doing that these big denominations have known about and endorsed. If anything, the bigger the structure, the slower the response rate to such indiscretions, right? On the other hand, the house church advocates often point the finger at how the institutional churches are misguided and they don't really love people and, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? You know, there's, there's two sides and each side has these opinions about each other. Well, sadly, this entire debate is actually another way in which our shallow faith impacts our views. See, we lack depth when we think that this whole thing was ever about the method. The church is not about methodology. That's why Jesus was never prescriptive about how it was meant to be. We aren't meant to be advocates for a certain style of church. Talking about the methodology is like talking around the issue. The real issue is love for one another. We are meant to be advocates for love, which means if your method in any way compromises the value of the people of God, as I've demonstrated in the verses above, then your method needs to be examined. Now, I must admit, I do tend to err on the side of smaller when it comes to church. I do find it hard to comprehend how a megachurch can ensure that love and teaching the people of God to love one another is at the centre of its mission. I mean, in preparation for this podcast episode, I examined 10 church mission statements, 10 reputable churches that have their mission statements online from different denominations too. And I was not at all happy to discover that none of them included anything about loving each other. I mean, two or three kind of came close. And let's not play semantics. I checked vision statements too. It wasn't just the mission statements. But 10 well-known leading churches. These are churches that other churches want to be like. Nothing about loving each other. You know, I'm just thinking it would be really hard to achieve something when it's not even your goal. Hey, but you know what? Go ahead. Prove me wrong. I want to be wrong. I'm still not going to rule out that a mega church could do it because the deeper I go in my faith journey, the more I realize that where Jesus hasn't commented on a matter, I don't really have the right to. I don't have the right to say that this church is right and that church is wrong. Jesus isn't. You think he's up there saying, "Ugh, dinner churches, what are they trying to prove? Or, Or he's not up there saying, Hey, megachurch, I'm not going to bless you. No, he was not prescriptive for a reason. But what he is probably saying, no matter what method you are a part of, is don't forget what this is really about. Don't you forget to love each other. Don't let the machine take over. Love each other. In God's eyes, no method, no strategy, no vision statement or goal will ever justify unloving behavior to each other. And congregation member, you are not off the hook either. You are the church too. It's not just your pastors and leaders who are supposed to love each other. This mandate of loving the people of God is everyone's. And when love fuels our actions towards each other, we will come to understand what it means to be one. Now, the temptation for some is going to be to listen to this message and go, you know, she's got baggage. Mel has got baggage. I've heard Christians do that before. They hear something remotely unpositive and they dismiss the person, assuming that they have unresolved baggage and therefore they're not worthy of being listened to. Well, this is what I want to say to you. I don't have 
baggage. I've dealt with my baggage. And when I did, my vision became real clear. And what I saw was Jesus praying fervently to his father that we would be one just as he is one with the father. That was his priority for the people of God, for the church. That's what motivates me. Apologies that this has been a longer episode, but I just couldn't help myself. I love the church so much. I love the body of Christ so much. I was once at a Hillsong conference and I got to hear Pastor Bobby Houston speak about the lost. She spoke with such passion, such conviction. She asked this question, when was the last time you cried for the lost? And I remember thinking at the time, I've, I've never really cried for the lost. I've never cried about anything besides what was directly happening to me or around me at the time. But to have such a burden for the things of God that you were literally brought to tears, wow, I remember thinking she is a rare human. About a year later, I was driving home from night church and I began telling Jesus how much I loved the church, the people of God, the royal priesthood, that he is clothed with honour and glory. The ones that are esteemed and valued so much that he would pour his righteousness upon them, that they would know and see the glory of God. I just kept praying because I felt like I could see just exactly how God sees the people of God. And I sobbed, an ugly, ugly sob. It was, you know, definitely not a moment I wanted to share with other people. But I felt that burden and I finally understood what Pastor Bobby was talking about. That burden has led me to do some crazy things, some things that I've been told that you just can't do, things that the average Christian would call unwise, like writing a book when you have no credibility or starting a podcast when you're not an influencer or writing a book about disillusionment. You know, don't, what are you doing, Mel? Like, don't write a book about negative ideas, even if it's going to help people. You know, that's not considered like a popular topic. It made me put a poo emoji as a book cover. I've literally had so many people tell me, Mel, you're probably not doing yourself any favours with a poo emoji on your book. Yeah, I know. And on those days that I worry about the money, I think to myself, maybe I should have written a book about spiritual breakthrough instead of disillusionment. You know, that would sell. You'd be getting conference invites and everything, Mel. You'd be able to build your brand. But how would any of that express my love for the people of God? It's the people of God that keep me up at night, that keep me dreaming about the day when the bride and the bridegroom finally come together. It's the oneness with each other that keeps me stepping out in faith and trying new things. We are supposed to be family, bonded by love and the Holy Spirit. Could there be a greater bond? Thanks for listening to this episode of The Pink Elephant. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, or you can check out my resources on my website, meljsaywood.com.